0: Hello, hello. Welcome into Spinning a Yarns Tale, a fiber arts, history, and culture podcast brought to you by you and I yarns in Chehalis, Washington.
1: My name is Blair. My name's Denise. And welcome in. I feel like you've been practicing that intro. That sounded really good.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I have not been practicing. (laughs) I'm just very good at it. You're very professional. I'm I'm basically a professional podcaster now. You can't see it, but I did a fake hair flip. Oh,
1: perfect. <laughs> For the listeners at home, she did a hair flick. Ooh, woo. Um, let's start with how are you doing and what are you knitting? Well, I am knitting on my
0: bonnie cardigan. Um, I finished the body and I've started the sleeves. Um, the sleeves are in a contrasting color. The... Ribbing at the bottom of the body is also in a contrasting color. And I'm going to do the button band in a contrasting color, because I ran out of yellow.
1: (laughs) Got to do something.
0: I like yellow, though.
1: Me too. And I
0: want to finish this. Yeah, it looks good. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's going to be a nice one. I think so, too. I'm pretty excited. Um, But don't tell my boyfriend that I'm this far along, because he's really mad that I still haven't finished his Fisherman Cable sweater. But I also just hate <laughs> cables. <laughs> it's been two years.
1: Uh, okay. Well, this one has been two years too, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has It's been. allowed. It's allowed. It's allowed. I'm it's just allowed. clearing out
0: some UFOs.
1: Yeah. This is a year of finishing, people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good. That's what's happening. <laughs> oh. well, how about you? What are you working on? I
1: am working on my bonnie again. <gasps> oh, my God, we're twins. And uh, my husband asked me to knit him some socks, which I've never done. And he was expecting them to be done last week, even though I started three days before the deadline that he had set. Um, so that didn't happen. Well... <laughs>
0: I feel like knitting's not about deadlines. It's not about deadlines. Well, unless you're a test
1: knitter, but like, you're not testing those socks. I'm not, yeah. I'm just, maybe next year. Maybe (laughs) next year. (laughs) You'll get them by next year, honey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so mostly the Bonnie cardigan, just like you, um, but I'm not as far as you are, so...
0: Well, I do have two years on you. <laughs> Experience. <laughs> that two years of slow knitting.
1: Um, yeah, I'm working on the raglan still. But it's it's coming, slowly but surely. It is. I believe it. I feel that that's part of knitting, too, is slowly but surely. Unless
0: you're, like, the fastest knitter, like those ladies in, oh, in yeah. Dent. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That
1: we talked about. Well, they would get whipped otherwise. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's true. We are not uh, under duress while we're knitting. (laughs) Um, Knitting is for relaxing people. But anyway.
1: Let's get back to... What are we talking about this week? (laughs) So this week we're talking about France and a tiny bit of Spain. And then I'm going to expand a little bit about some of the sheep found in France and originating in Spain. Um, I do, however, want to start by saying that some of the French history may be very similar to the English history. So some of the things might be a little bit um, redundant. They have some overlap. There is some overlap, but there's also some interesting new things that we found, and and the emphasis in in France is on on different things, I would say. Yeah. So, do you want to get started? Yeah, go ahead. All right, so, in France, in the 14th century, let's start there, um, commercial and artistry knitting was an active thing in most um, cities in France. So that's pretty early already, like the 14th century, um, and people were mostly knitting caps or bonnets or whatever you want to call them. Kind of like those artisan
0: guilds, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Those artisan guilds we talked about, they were more interested in the art instead of the practicality yes. of knitting.
1: Yeah, especially in, in Paris. We had a lot of artists in Paris who were mostly knitting the caps once again, and... Um, And yeah, in the home, people were knitting for for different reasons, not for artistry, but for earning a little bit of extra cash on the side. Yeah. Um, But this cap industry, this cap knitting industry uh, really flourishes well into the 18th century. So it's a long period of cap knitting and that cap knitting is really popular.
0: And these caps are really
1: similar to...
0: Scottish bonnets. That's where the overlap begins.
1: Yes. Yeah, so caps were um, the most popular thing to be knitted in France most of the time, honestly. Like, most of history, caps were the thing. Um, Once again, around the 16th century, knitting caps was well established in the family lives, in in family homes, um, to earn a little bit more money. Um, even though it it didn't earn them that much money, it was still, you know, the few, I was going to say euros, but euros were not a thing back then. The no. few francs that they could get. Yeah, francs for France, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, but then around that same time of the 16th century, um, towards the end, 1589 to be exact, William Lee invented the knitting, the first knitting machine in England, and um, he tried to get a patent for that and to release it into the world. But Elizabeth I, so the Queen of England at that time, said no, no, because what is going to happen to our manual knitters, our hand knitters? So yes, Elizabeth I was not a fan of William Lee's um, knitting machine, but William Lee moved to France with his brother, and there we had Henry IV, who was actually kind of a fan of the idea. And so he eventually patented it and um, brought out the knitting machine in France, and people enjoyed it way more than they would have in England. So that's probably where you already see that difference in emphasis in histories um, between England and France. Um, in French history there's a lot more emphasis on um, on machines and machination of or mechanization
0: machination machination uh, me- mechanization
1: mechanization. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um of knitting and the textile industry in general. And so that started in at the end of the 16th century already. Um and this knitting machine by the way,
0: it's it, it looks kind of like a spinning wheel. It's got two treadles and a big circle in the back and it knits flat. Which is yeah. really cool. Yeah, um, we'll put a picture of that in the show notes for you guys to look at. But it's it's kind of a really cool little machine. Yeah, it looks like a loom, kind of. Yeah, or like a spinning wheel, like um, yeah, like a country styled spinning wheel.
1: You know with, the yeah, with turtles and stuff.
0: Because there's the country spinners from Ashford. Mm-hmm. It looks kind of like that in shape.
1: Yeah, I don't know how people think of these inventions. They're crazy. And how a queen can say no. Like, isn't this so genius it needs to be celebrated?
0: It's... Well, I can kind of see where she's coming from. Um, With the introduction of machinery, at that time, thousands of people in England were knitting for money. Mm -hmm. And that's thousands of people who would then be without an income if one machine could do the work of 20 people. Yeah. Um. So it was, I think, more she was thinking of the welfare of her people rather than the how fast they can spit out a
1: pair of socks. She wasn't ready. She
0: wasn't ready. She wasn't
1: ready. That's it. Um, All right, we'll move on to mid-18th century, and we are in Troyes, which is a city in France. I believe we would say it as Troy...
0: Yeah, if you want to be an American, you say it,
1: Troy. (laughs) Troy. Um, So in this city, (laughs) I'm not going (laughs) to name it. In 1746, the first knitting frames arrived, and um, at the end of the 18th century, so a little bit later, cap making on these knitting frames was well established in the homes. Even so, people at home would use the knitting frame. To um, knit caps. Oh,
0: that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, another thing. This knitting machine that we mentioned is also called a knitting frame. So when we're looking at knitting frames, I believe that we're also talking
1: about machines. Yeah, it's kind of interchangeable because I think knitting frames are knitting looms. Like what we know today as knitting mm-hmm. looms with the pegs um, and then coming out the, the bottom type thing. Yeah. Um also the i cord uh the i cord little thing yes, like yes, the little yes, yes. doll is also coming from France. So now I'm suddenly wondering if that's um related to these knitting frames because that's basically what it is. A really tiny knitting frame to, to make lots of i cord i cord bind or not i cord bind off. <laughs> i cords. Um anyway, Back on track. We keep going all over the place, but that's, I think, the style of this podcast. Um, not very good at being linear, are we? <laughs> it's not our strong suit. Well, but we try. Suit. We try. We hope you enjoy it. Um, but so at the end of the 18th century, because knitting machines were already well established, and again, with knitting machines, we don't mean... Electrically driven machines, but like the knitting loom, the, the knitting frame, etc. Um, because these were well established, hand knitting became something for the upper class, which is what we see happening in England as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they even say that Marie Antoinette, uh, Louis XVI's wife, is known to have knitted a lot as well. Um, which is interesting. And the fineness of the work of the lady also reflected um, her status. Oh. Yeah. the finer yarns were considered a
0: luxury, and therefore they
1: were more expensive. So well, the finer I, I think, yarn. Yeah, and I think also harder to uh, – d- definitely that, but also harder to knit. Like a, a finer lace piece is is harder to knit than a – worst-at-weight stockinette thing. Don't come for my sweater. (laughs) I'm pointing at her body cardigan. Do not come for my cardigan. Um, No, but definitely, like, something, you know, you had rugged wool and then you had finer silks and and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So that definitely definitely played a role um, at that time. And... In most schools, girls were taught to knit as well because Rousseau, um, a philosopher, an education philosopher, if you will, I think most people know him, um, he once wrote that girls have a natural taste for needlework, so it should be included in the curriculum for girl schools.
0: This is kind of also where you get that flip. Yeah. Yeah. Women are better at knitting than men. Men shouldn't be knitting. It's women's
1: work. Yeah, suddenly it goes from artistry to fine needlework for women. Yes. Because it's too fine for men, I guess. They don't have the delicacy
0: that we do, which is completely false. A man can be incredibly delicate and make beautiful anything with his hands just as well as a woman can. Exactly. I agree.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Um, So... We enter into the 19th century, which is an interesting era because it's the Industrial Revolution. A lot of new uh, machines are being invented left and right. One of the knitting machines that is highlighted in the knitting history is um, a machine invented by Crane. I don't know his first name. Um, It looks like a loom, but there's um, the, the... the improvement on William Lee's knitting machine is that there's no chance of unraveling of the fabric, which apparently was a problem in in William Lee's invention. Probably because it would drop stitches. Yeah. I
0: wanna think that this one is more on par with the knitting machines that we're more familiar with. Yes, exactly. Not necessarily exactly, because ours are very, very
1: different. They're very advanced compared to 1829.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. But you also have – this is when, like, punch cards and stuff were made.
1: Yes. So 1850s – thank you, Blair. 1850s, um, Jacquard, or Jacquard, he he developed a loom that had punch cards – that you could use on the loom for color weaving and with these punch cards no human intervention was necessary anymore um in the knitting or in the weaving
0: so it was a great way to completely
1: automate the task yes no people were needed maybe just for threading the warp i suppose yeah, um, and watching the machine make sure it doesn't freak out in the middle. Yes, yeah, there was a lot of hands-on that way, but they didn't have to f- do anything in the process of the making of the fabric, which is cool. Um, and around that same time, chemical dyes um, offer more colorful choices, and I wonder if these two collide because the Jakar loom was specifically made for color work so um. that you could switch up colors uh, using the punch card,
0: and then you also have jacquard acid dives. Yes.
1: Mhm. Still. Still. These days. Yeah. Um. Exactly. Yes. Um. So that's really, uh, really cool how they how somebody invented this and, and and worked on this, in such early days. Honestly. Yeah.
0: And like. Chemical dyes came into being, but before this, uh, things were dyed naturally, you know, just like everywhere else. Um, We've talked a lot about matter root. We talked about indigo, but native to France is actually uh, dyer's woad, which is a plant. It's technically a weed um, (laughs) that has yellow flowers. But if you collect the leaves, you can dye your work indigo blue without having to have the indigo plant. Yeah. Um, The European source of pigment, indigo, is the leaves of woad, which was said by a biologist before uh, more, quote unquote, exotic means came into being, such as like Japanese indigo or Indian indigo or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was their version. Of blue. Of blue. Of indigo. And it could come in various shades depending on how much woad you add. Exactly. You yeah. could get a pastel blue. You could get a dark blue. I think if you mess up really bad, you can also get a pink.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it depends on the fabric too if you're using uh, like a cellulose base or a protein base. Yeah. Stuff like that. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, you can play with color that way,
0: and it's really fun. Yeah. At least in my opinion, I always want. I'm like one day I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna collect a woad, but then I forget about it, and then it's winter, <laughs> and then I never get yep. to collect
1: woad. <laughs> I once went looking for it in, in in a forest near my my house, and I thought I found some, but then I wasn't sure because there's so many weeds with. Yellow flowers.
0: There, there are. There's a ton. Yeah, but so. maybe we should buy like a plant identification book and go together.
1: Ooh, that'd be fun.
0: That would be fun. A little field trip. Ooh wee. <laughs> um, but even though we get got into like the, the machine. Industrial re- revolution. Mm-hmm. The industrial revolution. Um, you actually did a lot of, a lot of research on,
1: I'm not going to say this, you can say this. (laughs) Les (laughs) tricoteuses. Yeah, that one. Um, Yes, yeah. So the history of knitting in France, from what I could find, kind of ends around the 19th century, um, at least for me, because it kind of overlaps with, you know, the history that we see in England in the 20th century, the World Wars, etc. Um, the decline of hand knitting because we have fast fashion. Um, so I kind of want to leave that for just for that and then move back in time a little bit. Yeah.
0: And bef- before we do that, uh, we say fast fashion. It's not, it's still fast fashion back then for them because you're going from completely handmade items to something made on a machine, yeah. but it's
1: not completely in
0: line with fast fashion today.
1: No, but like the fast fashion that started in in the 80s, maybe.
0: Yeah, but I feel like it was a building thing from the introduction of machine yes. Yeah. all the way up to what we know today. So this is kind of like, we say fast fashion, but we want you to take that and think of it as it's like baby form.
1: Yes. Yeah. Critically think with us here.
0: <laughs> and I just want to say... On the record, fast fashion, not
1: great. Not great. Yeah, maybe we should do an episode about that too. Yeah. Probably way too big of a topic, but would be cool right now to explore. Yes, definitely. Um, But leaving fast fashion behind, I want to move back in time to the period of the French Revolution, so end of the 18th century because something interesting happened. um, And if you look or if you Google or look up anything about knitting in France, you will find something about these women that I'm going to talk about. So around the start of the French Revolution, um, food was scarce for families, for most anyone, but mostly the, the lower class. Families And so French women had enough, um, marched all the way to Versailles, which I don't know if you've ever been to Paris and took the train to Versailles, but it's not just a, a silly, silly little walk around the park.
0: It's not like walking 15
1: minutes to the no, gas station. It's it's a little bit longer. Um so they were really fed up with the system and everything else, so they marched to Versailles um, to protest the food prices. Louis Sixteenth was decently generous and actually responded to their demands, which there's one yay for Louis XVI. Um, but from then on out, these women became public figures um, because they... They achieved something pretty significant for their families. And so they became important revolutionaries, uh, you know, public figures that were a symbol almost of the revolution um in those days. And they would be very, I wouldn't call it aggressive, but they would openly, Discriminate against people who were not part of the revolution, if you will, and this started with just being part of political assemblies, and you know, s- saying what they what they what was on their mind. But they also, out on the streets, they would actually um, sometimes intimidate people who were um, not part of the revolution. So. The revolutionary government A few years later, about four years later Was afraid That these women were getting too much power And So concluded that they were not welcome Anymore for any sort of political Assembly This of course did not Make these women happy And so what they would Do Almost like a little revolution Within the revolution Is hang out at Place de la Révolution. And um, they would watch the executions from non-revolutionaries or anti-revolutionary figures uh, by the guillotine. Um, so what is
0: that French phrase you said before? What does that translate into in English?
1: Oh, um, the the... Revolution. What do you call a place? Um, like a like a,
0: oh a square.
1: Place. Yeah, the square. Like a, like a town square. Yes. Yes.
0: So they would Thank sit you. in these towns. This town square, this specific one. Yes. At the guillotines.
1: Yeah, this was the 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 place where people would be executed. In this case, yes.
0: So these were people who were not part of the French Revolution. People who maybe were. Rich or
1: yes, higher class or part of the government or people like that, and eventually, Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, of course, which we all know about. Yes, um, the king and queen of that time. Yeah, so they would sit in this square and watch um, executions. And there's, you have Charles Dickens's um, book, novel. A Tale of Two Cities, which is also partially about the French Revolution. And there's a character in the book who knits the names of, I think, anti-revolutionaries into caps that she's knitting. Um, This is sensationalism at at its finest, I I would say. Um, It's not confirmed that um, these ladies actually knit anti-revolutionary t- names into the caps but what is uh, known is that they actually did knit the caps while people were being executed in front of their eyes um, and they would even sit in the front row so other people could watch these women knit during the executions it was like an extra entertainment part to the executions
0: yeah It was interesting to see women in the front row of something so gruesome. Yeah. But they were kind of leaders, kind of, like, they led by example. You want to be part of the revolution because it's going to be better for people. And all of these women want a better life for their families. Yeah, that's at the heart of it. Yeah. They're taking their women's work and making it public to say that even though we can't do, like, fighting, we're here knitting these caps for the revolutionaries yeah. while people who are anti-revolutionary are dying.
1: Yes, basically that's that's what it was. Um, and the caps that they would knit were red and they had a certain shape to them. If you think of the smurfs, oh okay th- yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the shape that these hats have. Um, and they symbolized liberty. Which is interesting in in the French Revolution. Um, so they weren't just caps that they were knitting; they were like symbol symbolic of the liberation and liberty of these people. Um, and these caps have been worn by freed slaves in the Roman Empire, so all the way back in history. Um, so that's where these caps come from.
0: Yeah. Because it makes sense to pull that imagery because these people were be, be, being treated so poorly
1: mm-hmm.
0: by the nobility and the rich and the government itself that they they didn't have enough food to feed their families. They were living in hellish conditions. And so it was time for them to rise up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They definitely did that. <laughs>
0: They definitely, they definitely, yeah. They, they succeeded.
1: <laughs> they Which definitely did. Changed everything for the French as well. Yeah, um, but yeah. So they were representing the the freedom of slaves of freed slaves in Roman times. So that's what I what I learned about the the tricoteuses, and it's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, because um, you can take that and you can kind of. Put it into current. uh, They were knitting revolutionaries, and then there is still like the word for it is escaping me, but it's knitting to represent a greater cause, and that Mm -hmm. still happens today. Um, For us, it was for uh, they. They were there was a time they were hand knitting like hats it was like pink hats and it was for women's reproductive rights when they were doing marches for that. Mm -hmm. Um, They did, there's a a whole subset of people who will, who have the saying, no, I just won't sit and mind my knitting because knitting is, has always been political.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, It's always been important to changing and, no, I'm not going to just be some more person who knits. I'm going to take part in the betterment of people. Yeah. So that's still kind of a thing that flies around today. And I think, it, I think it's really interesting. I will try to find the word I'm looking for and post like a good resource for it in our show notes. Yeah. Um, but I think it's an interesting parallel because that happened so long ago, but it's still happening today
1: yeah it's it's happened all throughout history, I think, and it's really cool how how something like a almost like a craft that we're doing and joking about and talking about all the time is is something that can be so powerful um, mm-hmm. to making a change
0: and it's a great support, yeah you know um, but anyway. Before. Moving forward from this, <laughs> um, we have a little bit of information about Spain and the origination of Mer- Merino sheep. Yes. Um, as well as after that, I think we'll talk a little bit about French sheep because French sheep have a lot of sheep. They have a lot of sheep.
1: Mm-hmm. They yeah. lot of sheep and they're not all relevant um, to what we're interested in here in the fiber world. But Lots yes. of
0: meat sheep. Yeah. Yes. Lots, Lots of, of meat, meat and, sheep. and dairy sheep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because um, if one there's one thing France is known for, it's cheese and food and food
1: in general. Yeah, yes, they have good food. Um, <laughs> do you want to tell us something about Spain? Sure. Um,
0: some of the oldest dated European knitted pieces, like uh, just bits and bobs that we can find, originated in Spain. Um, there was a pair of Pillows that were found in the tombs of two Alfonso X's children. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting because these are not garments that they were wearing. It's a pillow with a pattern on it. Yeah. Because Spain is warm, so knitting there for garments is, was, was not viable. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did not wear like a knitted t-shirt or a knitted uh, undergarment, like a shawl or not a shawl, um, a sweater. Cause before, for a long time, sweaters were considered undergarments. You would put them under something to then wear like your dress or your, your dress shirt over. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really need that in Spain. Spain's warm. Yeah. It gets pretty, a little, pretty warm, pretty warm <laughs> and it stays pretty warm for a long time. They did, however, have a really big lace culture, mm-hmm. um, and that lace culture produced things that they did wear, which are, yeah, like, the mantillas. Yes, which, a mantilla is a uh, like a veil. Mm-hmm. So back in uh, Spanish, Sp- Spanish Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic times, um, these women were covering their hair with a mantilla mm-hmm. and these mantillas were lace they were delicate you could still see their hair through it but it was beautiful they were much more focused on the aesthetic yes. um, they did have things like lace shawls and lace uh, like doilies is the only word I can think of it yeah. things that you would put on the table for decoration um, they did have a lot of sheep so the wool was still there mm-hmm. but they didn't really focus so much on wearing a lot of garments i'm sure that they did have garments like stockings and stuff like that that they wore but we already covered stockings so many times in so many different places it felt a little redundant
1: to bring it up well and also i think they mostly used silk if anything because it's more of a cooler fabric it's a more
0: wool is breathable but it retains heat really well yeah whereas silk lets go of it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and um you mentioned the Catholic Church, and I think most of what we have found in Spain is related to the Catholic Church. So there's there's a pair of gloves that they have found in the in the same tomb as well. Um, and these were decorated with, um, I think the Lamb of God, so so Jesus. and um, like some animals around it, like really fine embroidery. So not color work, but embroidery on top of the knitted fabric. Um, Gotcha. Yeah.
0: I know that embroidery was really big in Spain. Um, They were one of the biggest producers of embroidered lace for a long Mm -hmm. time. Yes. Um, That's what crocheted lace, Irish crocheted lace, wanted to mimic. Mm -hmm. They wanted to mimic the fine details of Spanish uh,
1: embroidered lace. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you have Madeira lace... Which is what we just talked about with the mantillas and the doilies, like the knitted lace. But you also have Madeira embroidery, which is... Incredibly fine. Yes. And what you just mentioned, like the the Spanish embroidery um, that we know.
0: Yeah. Um, And like we said, they mostly... It was mostly outer garments that they would wear, that they would knit. Uh, So things like shawls, um, things like their mantillas, gloves... Catholic cloaks. Cloaks, yeah. things like that. Yeah, um, That's more what they were into knitting at that time instead mm-hmm. of what we think as like, traditional knitting clothes, mm-hmm. sweaters. Um, people actually knit their own undergarments for a long time, especially for the winter, but that wasn't like, a huge deal in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, so they... When I say undergarments, I mean like long johns. They would knit long johns to wear under their pants or whatever for the warmth. Um, and they made socks and beautiful, beautiful, delicate lace things to have. Yeah. Um, sometimes they would knit these this lace and attach it to pillows
1: and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened as well. Um, and then, if anybody else has anything on spain if we miss something yes. something
0: interesting that you would like us to come back and cover again we would love to hear about it um i looked through a couple college library resources and i i couldn't find much outside of Montillas yeah um so if we miss something please let us know we want to know
1: <laughs> we want to know and we will
0: mention it in the next possible podcast exactly yeah um but the interesting thing, Spain had a lot of sheep, right? And one of the biggest sheep we know today is the Merino sheep, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of a general name these days. Yeah.
0: It's in almost every yarn that you can pick up because it's soft. And you can pick up, like, literally any, any like, big name brand yarn. So we're talking about a Plymouth or uh, a Cascade Yarns or a... Um, like a Barroco, uh, things like that, most of the time they'll, they'll have a Merino in there, <laughs> a superwash Merino specifically. Um, so it's a really, really common modern-day sheep, but where it
1: started was actually in Spain. Yeah. Well, to be entirely true or fair, it started in Morocco. Ooh, um, so in Africa. Yeah, in North Africa. So Spain is really, really close to Morocco. It's like an eight-mile boat ride or something. Um, so really, they're pretty close. And they've um, they've always been a gateway to Europe for Morocco, for Africa. So a lot of trade happened between Europe and North Africa through Morocco and Spain. And so what happened in the 20th to thir- the third or sorry not 20th the 12th to 13th century thank you very much I was
0: very, like the 1900s <laughs> that's really recent
1: <laughs> very early on um, spanish royalty began importing rams from the Baini marines and i hope i pronounced that correctly which is a tribe in morocco um and these these rams from morocco were crossed with the best sheep in Spain. And somehow this yielded the finest best wool ever. Um. Quote unquote. I yes. think merino.
0: Be, merino being the best <laughs> wool is like kind of subjective.
1: Well, in the 12th century, it might have been
0: different. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> they really valued fineness back then.
1: Yes. And um, here I am. I like a good crunchy wool. You like a, yeah. We're going back to rustic here. Yes. <laughs> Um but these so these these sheep, this breed of the of the fine wool was named Merino after this tribe, I suppose. Um, and this wool became a success. The, the sheep became a success in in most of Europe. And so it was. Spain had a monopoly basically on the the Europe European market in in wool in um, fine wool yeah in fine wool yeah at that time and so in the middle ages it was actually prohibited in Spain to export any of the sheep because they wanted to keep That monopoly. Yes. Oh, they were playing hardball. And this is, we're talking prohibited as in the death penalty. Oh, oh, they were playing hardball. Yes. My
0: goodness. (laughs) I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was only much later, actually, that merinos were being exported to different countries. Um, In 1793, they were first exported to North America started out in Canada, actually, and then moved to the United States as well. But this is where crossbreeding started, and this is why there's so many different Merino varieties.
0: Like the CVM. Yeah. CVM, I believe, is a breed, a crossbreed with a Merino in there. Um, You got...
1: Gosh. Well, you got Australian uh, Merino and then Saxon Merino and whatever we we got going on here. There's some of the French, um, some of the French sheep that we'll talk about are a cross between a merino and something else. Um, and some of the wool qualities stay the same, some change. So a lot of clothing brands these days that make something with wool will often mention merino wool. Doesn't mean that we get merino wool. Yeah, or the the same kind of merino wool as the next batch of of wool, kind of.
0: Yeah, Um, because they have a lot of places they can pull it from. They don't really necessarily have to specify to us, the consumers, if it's a Saxon merino or an Australian merino or a U.S. grown merino. It's just a merino, um, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: and consumers will eat it up because we love merino. We do, apparently.
0: <laughs> if we actually want to get into it, my favorite breed of sheep is um, a Shetland. Not uh, kidding.
1: I got a sweater the other day that specifically mentioned it was Shetland wool.
0: Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, it was really cool. But um, I don't have a particular favorite breed of sheep, actually. I like them all.
1: I don't know. Yeah. I like them all. Well, and there's a lot of yarn and products that say wool, could be so many breeds, you know... Shoved into one Yeah, one, into wool. one yarn, yeah. Yeah.
0: But <laughs> circling back from Merinos, or to Merinos, um, we talked about the strains, the different strains of Merinos, and that's kind of where it closes the story. Sheep are ever-growing and ever-changing. Um, current Merinos are a lot different than what Merinos used to be. Um, but... Since we're still on the topic of sheep, we should probably circle back around to France (laughs) since we told them that there was a breed of sheep that was crossbred with merinos. So let's start from the top.
1: Yes. Um, So highly recommend this book um, that we have here about sheep breeds. Oh, The Field Guide to Fleece. Thank you, Blair. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because there's a lot of information on every i think every single breed in this world and they they talk about what kind of fiber they give but also the cross breeds and like how they you know where they came from. It's a really yeah. great resource. It mm-hmm. tells you how fine it is in
0: microns. Um, it tells you how long the average staple is. It tells you where they came from, what they were bred with, and how they got to be where they are. And it's it's a really really wonderful resource to just have um, if you're a spinner. I myself am a spinner. Denise is a spinner. Yeah. I have the pocket version. She has the big version, the which big I'm. Boy. Yeah. It because there's two versions. There's the pocket fuel guide to fleece um it's not called that, but it's made by the same people and it's about the size of like a postcard, and it has not every sheep breed but some of the most popular ones to spin with um and that's the one I own because I was scared of buying the big boy <laughs> now I'm envious. I wish I had the big boy.
1: I was courageous enough. I dove into the deep end,
0: hey um. If you fall down a fiber rabbit hole, it's a very soft landing, so. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's definitely true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so in France, we have a few sheep. We're going to go over them pretty quick because most of them are mostly meat sheep. So let's start with Ouson, which is a little island between Britain and France. If you zoom out far enough... Uh, on the map, you don't even see it. Um, these sheep are very tiny, just like the island, I guess. And they have two coats, so they're double coated,
0: kind of like um, like if you need a, a good reference, like a sh- uh, not a Shetland, um, an Icelandic, mm-hmm. an Icelandic sheep.
1: Yes, they're um, they're mostly being used for meat, even though they're so small. So there's not a lot of information on uh, their fiber. And that's all I have to say about Wesson sheep. Um, and then Charolais, which I think is also a, a cow breed, mm-hmm. um, is a meat a meat breed in the sheep um, sheep industry.
0: And then there's Blue Domain, mm-hmm. uh, and again, it's it's a meat. It's a meat sheep, but they are a cross between a Lester Longwool and a Wensleydale and a Schulte. yeah. Choletay. Um, Who are now extinct, by the way. Sholte don't the exist. Last, yes. Yeah. Don't exist anymore. Um, they were brought... They were bred in the late 1800s. They've got a really long staple length, uh, very wavy crimp, not some tight curls. Mm-hmm. Um, because they come from, like, the Leicester long wools, I'm imagining that their wool is more used for things like uh, core spinning for rugs.
1: Yeah. If anything, because um, what they said for what they mentioned in uh, for most of the meat, um Sheep is that the shearing of the sheep is not a priority. Yeah. So the way they shear is not geared towards fiber enthusiasts, if you will. There's second cuts, there's stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, which for the Wesson couldn't be useful because there's two coats anyway, but for some of the other breeds, it's it's kind of annoying for spinners.
0: Yeah, which is why we have like all these sheep, but not everybody spins every sheep. Yeah. Because. People who own them don't necessarily spin. They're more in it for, like, maybe the meat or the cheese. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, now we're on the Rouge de l'Ouest? L'Ouest, yes. <sighs> I'm getting better nice. at French. <laughs> Making my French ancestors gr- proud. My grandpa would be smiling <laughs> upon Jumping. me. yeah. Doing Jumping a little a down. Yeah, clicking his heels together and going, <laughs> Um but there's, they've got similar breeding to the Blue Domain, um, but they're very different wool-wise. They have a very short staple. They're mostly used for meat, once again. Um, but they are also known in Britain as the British Rouge.
1: Yeah. And so they are French, so I'm not sure why they're called the British Rouge. Uh,
0: um, you know, it's Britain. Yeah. They I'm not going to say any. I'm not going to say anything more than that. I don't want to. <laughs> don't want to make anybody angry. Um, uh, <laughs> we love Britain. <laughs> we love British people. <laughs> that makes it sound like we don't. We truly do. <laughs> we,
1: we really don't care.
0: <laughs> I really don't care. Yeah, me either. Um, okay. Well, what's the next one?
1: Île de France, um, which means island of france literally but it's also a region in france um this is a sheep that's crossed between or is a cross between the disley leicester and a french rambouillet um for us americans that's rambouillet yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> and they were brought into north america in 1995 so pretty late again they're mostly raised for their meat um but the wool still has a little bit of merino in it um and so it can be soft and it's even pleasant to spin they say
0: Ooh, yeah i have to get my hands on that somehow mm-hmm. um and then you have the rambolay itself which is yay ooh, a really it's a really good sheep breed to spin i love it it's got it's a fine wool so it's I believe, under 25 microns to spin. And it is really, really, really soft and bouncy and airy. And I'm a fan. A real big fan, actually. Nice. It's not my favorite cheap. Oh. We'll figure that out one day. <laughs> Because I, I don't know either. But it's a really nice sheep to nice. spin. I recommend it if people are looking to get like a really soft wool to learn spinning on. I like to re- recommend a Rambele. Yeah,
1: instead of Merino.
0: Because Merino can be a little sticky because it's so fine. Mm-hmm. Not sticky as in like it'll leave your fingers sticky. But when you're drafting, sometimes it's a little hard to draft. Yeah. Um, so I like to recommend people a Rambele because it's still soft and it's a joy to spin. Nice. But um, anyway, the real history behind
1: Rambouillet. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Go for it. Okay. So in 1786, Louis Sixteenth imported some Merino sheep from Spain to his estate in Rambouillet, which is how the, the breed is called now. Um, and so breeding these Merino sheep turned into a different sheep that we know now as the Rambouillet. Um, in 1840... They were first introduced in the United States, so actually pretty early on already. And um, like Blair already said, they're, they're very soft. They're still not in the ultra-fine category like the Merinos, but they're definitely uh, a very nice wool to work with.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's really kind of it. Um, those are some of the more recognizable and bigger sheep breeds from France.
1: Yeah, so mostly meat sheep, and then we have some more popular fiber sheep that we see. So they are from France, but we also see them in the United States since the 1840s, which is, you know...
0: I have a question.
1: Yeah. Is Cheviot, is Cheviot a French sheep? I didn't see them in the French category. In the book? Yeah. Huh, okay. Never but mind. I, I know they're in the book. Yeah. So we should look that up maybe add it in the show notes or something it's a little little side note a little treat. fyi fyi guys Cheviot. cheviot um
0: but okay yeah that kind of wraps up what we wanted to talk about today yeah um we talked a little bit about sheep i got to gush a little bit about spinning uh we talked a little bit about france and the revolution uh i hope you enjoyed it
1: Yeah, I hope so, too. Again, if we missed anything on, like, Spain or even France, feel free to add it, um, and we'll we'll hopefully mention it in the next
0: episode. Yeah, we'll research it um, Mm -hmm. and put some real thought into where we're going to stick it, because there... I always think of things, and I'm like, oh, this would make a great episode. Oh, yeah. this would make a great episode. But if we genuinely miss something, please let us know. Because mm-hmm. we'll we'll find a place to put it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to email us at tail at gmail.com, all lowercase. Uh, or reach out to us on our YouTube or...
1: We are also very active on our Instagram. Yes, <laughs> on Monday every two weeks. We're gonna try to be better about that. We're trying we're not, to be better. We're not the
0: greatest at social media. It'll come. But anyway, my name's Blair. My name's Denise. And this has been another episode of Spinning a Yarns Tale, brought to you by You and I Yarns in Chehalis, Washington. We hope you enjoyed. See ya.